Now, how many of you have had a chance to, uh, to go to the Christmas concert? All right. All the rest of you better be here tonight. <laughs> Talk to the ones you saw with their hands up. They can tell you how great it is. So be good. Good time. Well, good morning. It is a little surreal, I have to say, to be standing up here before you, poised to wrap up a series that began back in August of 2002. <laughs> but quite honestly, it feels good. It feels good. I have no idea what I'm going to teach the next time, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. Um, I hope that the long lapses between the messages haven't uh, caused you to miss the, the flow and the general overarching theme of joy that uh, permeates this short but yet very powerful letter. And hopefully you'll get a chance to see that. Philippians is a, is a great letter, I think, for all of us to go through. Whenever we need to kind of rekindle that, that joy that fire of joy in our hearts when we're, we're lacking it. It's a great letter to go back over because it helps the reader to regain their focus, to put everything back in its proper perspective so that we might live the lives that God calls each and every one of us to live. I hope that our time together in this book has been as profitable for you as it has been for me. Uh, I've grown a lot just in preparing and, and studying and, and doing these things, just remembering how joy is to be a part of the the believer's life. It is something that is ours in Christ. And I hope God has grown you in that area through our time together in it. It's my prayer that this morning will in some way help solidify that joy and aid each of us in living as God calls us to live as his children. In fact, why don't we right now pray to that end that God would do that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is so good to gather together with, uh, with these saints and to just uh, open up your word. And Lord, I pray that you will just uh, use this time this morning for your glory. That, Lord, you will help each of us to set aside the, the various distractions and the things that are occupying our thoughts and our minds right now. Lord, I pray that you will help us to set those things aside so that we might come to your word ready to learn and ready to be changed by its great power. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray right now that you will just be glorified as we open it up and look at what it has to teach us. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, the story is told of a farmer who had lived on the same farm for all of his life. It was a good farm, but with the passing years, the farmer began to just tire of it began to wear on him a little bit he longed for for some type of a change for something in his mind that was better every day as he looked at the farm he found something new some new reason to criticize some feature of this place that he'd spent his whole life on so finally he decides to sell and so he lists he lists the farm with the real estate broker and This broker promptly prepares a sales advertisement for the farm. And as one might expect, it emphasized all the benefits of the the farm, all of the things that were right with the farm. Mentioned things like the ideal location, uh, the modern equipment that was on the farm, the healthy stock, the acres of fertile ground, etc., etc. You get the idea. But before placing the ad in the newspaper, the realtor called the farmer and he read him the copy for his approval to make sure that he was going to be fine with what he was listing here. And after he had finished, the farmer cried out and he said, Oh, hold on, hold everything. I've changed my mind. I'm not going to sell. Well, the perplexed real estate broker asked the farmer, Why? what's, What's made you change your mind? To which the farmer replies, Well, it's just that I've been looking for a place like that all my life. And now that I finally found it, I don't want to give it up. Uh, In this made-up story, we see how easy it is to kind of lose sight of what we have, right? If we're not careful, you and I can become a lot like that farmer. We We can complain and grumble about the many things that we have been blessed with. We can start to lose our perspective. The Apostle Paul was a man who labored greatly to ensure that he never led any of his believers away from having the right perspective. He always went the extra mile to make sure that nobody and none of his actions were misunderstood 
by those that were watching him. Now, in this morning's text, we find a good example of Paul taking great pains to uh, clearly explain his appreciation for a gift that was sent to him by the church in Philippi. In what could have been something as simple as just a a hearty, hey, thanks for the gift, uh, Paul launches into what we find in Philippians 4, 10 through 20. So why don't we go ahead and open up the Word of God to that passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And this is what the Word of God says. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me, Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul rejoiced greatly in the Lord because the Philippians were able to revive their concern for him through a financial gift that was delivered at the hand of Epaphroditus. Now, in writing to the church, he wants to make sure that he thanks them for their expression of love, but he also wants to make sure that he doesn't mislead them into thinking that he was in any way expecting or dependent upon their goodness and their generosity. Many years had gone by since the Philippians were able to send their their last gift. And, And while we don't know for certain whether it was Paul's circumstances that caused the delay or just the Philippians' own poverty in in getting the money together, we do know that it was not their lack of love and concern for the apostle. They had been a group that had always had a genuine love for Paul. And now they were having the opportunity to revive this love, to rekindle it through the sending of their gift. The love which had always been there was able to manifest itself again, much like a tree or a flower does in the springtime after it is laid dormant through a long, cold winter. And Paul, well aware of their deep love for him, rejoices in the Lord that they have been given this opportunity to once again demonstrate their love. And as much as Paul appreciates the gift, as much as he he really appreciated their, their work that they were doing there to get that to him, he wanted them to know that he appreciated them, the givers, much more. Paul's rejoicing was in the Lord because their gift bore evidence of the fact that God was continuing to perfect the work that he had begun in their lives. He was continuing to change their hearts, the hearts that Paul had labored so intensively over for so, for so long. The money they sent met a need, no doubt. It, it filled its purpose. But much more than that, Paul wanted them to know that their, their thoughtfulness meant more to him than the money. For Paul, worldly goods and treasures were of little concern. He could really care less about that sort of stuff. I mean, what consumed him? What defined him? What mattered most to him? He laid bare to us in Philippians three ten to 11 when he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of, dead, of the dead. From the time of his conversion to the writing of this letter in, in a prison cell from Rome, Paul had learned many 
many valuable lessons that shaped him into the caring and compassionate man that takes 11 verses to say thank you for your generous gift. And it's in these verses that you and I are able to glean some practical wisdom in living a life of joy. So this morning, we're going to look at five lessons that you and I must learn if we are to rejoice greatly in the Lord. Five lessons that, if learned properly, are guaranteed to satisfy even the toughest of hearts because they are lessons that are grounded in the work and in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the first lesson that you and I must learn if we are to rejoice greatly in the Lord is the lesson of contentment. We must learn the lesson of contentment. Let's look at verses 11 and 12, where he writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, the Greek word that the apostle uses for the word content literally means self-sufficient. It means that a person is uh, independent of circumstances or conditions or their surroundings. They have sufficiency in themselves or in oneself. What Paul is trying to convey here to the Philippians is that his joy is in no way dependent upon money. He has learned through both time and trials the, the particular art of contentment. He's come to a place whereby in his life he can honestly say that he is independent of his circumstances. No matter what condition he may find himself in, no matter how difficult things may be, he's fine with it because he has learned that true joy is not dependent upon one's circumstances. In verse 12, Paul covers a gamut of circumstances to show how he's learned this lesson. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Oh, brothers and sisters of Calvary Bible Church, how I wish that each of us in here could learn this incredibly valuable lesson how i wish that each of us here could learn to be content no matter what the size of our houses our cars our bank accounts our retirement funds how i wish that each of us would learn to not be mastered by money and possessions so many in the church today are getting caught up in the pursuit of things. They're chasing after stuff instead of Jesus Christ. They're consumed with things instead of Jesus Christ. Albert Schweitzer, a noted German theologian, philosopher, and musician of the 20th century, once made this pointed comment. He said, if you have something you can't do without, you don't own it. It owns you. We live in a society that is constantly attempting to blur the line between needs and wants. We are told about all of the various things that we need. And yet I ask you, are these things really needs? Do we truly need these things? Are they essential for our livelihood? Not our lifestylehood, but our livelihood. Is that bigger car a need or a want? Is that ski boat a need or a want? Is that new promotion you're after at work a need or a want? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these things are sinful I'm just trying to help you to decipher the difference between something that is a want and something that is truly a need. 
I want to help you to process that. If God's blessed you with the money to buy a, a nice car and to own a nice house and to have lots of cool little toys, that's great. I have no problem with you in regards to that as long as those things do not define you. As long as you would be just as content without them as you are with them. Just so long as your happiness and your joy are not dependent upon things that the Bible tells us are passing away. Now, in case any of you are sitting out there saying, yeah, Brock, you tell those rich people, you let them know the dangers of that stuff. In case any of you might just be sitting out there doing that. Well, let me bring it back to you. Because it is possible to not own any of the things that I have just previously mentioned and yet to still be mastered by them. The question I want to ask those of you who find yourself on the have-not side of the equation is this. Are you content in your circumstances? Have you learned the lesson of contentment that is necessary in order to have a joy that cannot be taken away by the ever-changing circumstances of this world? Or do you, like many in our society, grumble and complain and have a spirit of bitterness against those who have what you really want, what you're really desiring? How easy it is to see what is wrong with others and yet to fail the propensity, to fail to see the propensity of our own hearts to wander and to stray after things. I truly don't know which side of the fence it is harder to be on. I mean, whether it's more difficult to have much or to have little. Because when we have much, we can begin to remove God from the picture. And we can begin to use our wealth to manipulate circumstances and situations so that it meets our own wants and our own desires. It is hard to make a rich person see their need for Jesus Christ because really, from a worldly standpoint, they have all that they need. Their comfort, their confidence is in their wealth and it's hard to help them to see you need Jesus Christ. And yet when we have little, we can fret and we can worry and thus we can fail to rejoice in God in the way that we should. If we are stretched so thin that we don't know how we're going to pay for certain things, that can begin to wear on us and and cause in us a bitterness because we don't have enough money to pay for the things that we need to pay for. Both are hard. Both are a challenge. And yet our text tells us that Paul was a man who knew what it was like to be on both sides of the fence. And over time... God used that to help Paul to learn the lesson of contentment such that no matter what the circumstances were that surrounded Paul, he was not controlled by them. His joy was in Jesus Christ. So whether he found himself in humble means or prosperity, filled or going hungry, in abundance or suffering need, Paul was a man who had learned contentment. And this isn't just some rhetoric that Paul throws out to make himself look good and just to kind of, you know, stand in front of a crowd and say, this is, this is where it's at. This is something that he had put on display for the Philippians. And we see this in, in his first visit to their city with Silas. In Acts 16, through 25, it's, it tells us, the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. There was no despondency on Paul's part. There was no woe is me type of mentality. I mean, even though he had, he had 
come to experience a, a rather lucrative way of life prior to his conversion. I mean, being a Pharisee, having the respect and the admiration of those around him, even though he had experienced all of these great things, to be beaten and thrown into prison did not in any way rob the apostle of his joy. And the reason it didn't is because his joy was independent of his circumstances. He was content in whatever circumstances he found himself in. But what about you, brothers and sisters? Are you somebody who has learned to be content in whatever comes your way? Are you somebody who could be content if you were to lose your home or your car or your job? How about a spouse or a child? Would you still be content? Would you still be able to rejoice in your salvation like the Apostle Paul? Not would you not be moved by those circumstances, but could you still have joy if any of those things were suddenly removed from you? The things in this life are fleeting. They are ever-changing. They come and they go. And yet in Hebrews 13.8, we're reminded of the truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And because of that great truth, because of His birth, His death, His resurrection, you and I can have a joy that cannot be touched by our circumstance. Paul got this. He learned this lesson of contentment. And therefore, as much as he appreciated the Philippians' gift, he didn't need it. It was not necessary for his joy. He would have still had the same joy without it. His position in Christ was sufficient. No matter what the obstacles or trials that came his way, his love for Christ rendered him independent of his circumstances, a lesson he had learned over time and trials, a lesson that each of us, each of us here, must learn if we are to preserve the joy that can be ours in Christ. Let us learn the lesson of contentment. Now, the second lesson that you and I must learn if we are to rejoice greatly in the Lord is the lesson of dependence. We must learn the lesson of dependence. Look at verse 13 where it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this statement by Paul is not some type of an egotistical boasting in himself. It has very little to do with him, but rather it is a boasting in Christ. Paul was somebody who loved to just boast in Christ. He writes in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10.17, he writes, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. As Christians, as those who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, we need to rejoice in the new life that is ours in Christ. It is a life that is made possible only by being in Jesus Christ. Turn with me real quick to John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, so that I can drive home this point of, that I'm trying to make here regarding dependency. John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5. In this passage, Jesus is basically sitting down to enjoy the Passover meal with his disciples. During the meal, he gets up and he proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. From there, he goes on to predict his betrayal. He tells them about the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus talks with his disciples about their need to abide in him. Listen to what verses 4 and 5 say. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. Take a moment to drink that in. Apart from me, 
you can do nothing. That basically means that outside of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I are not able to produce any, any kind of spiritual fruit whatsoever. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many good deeds you may think that you're doing, there is zero productivity in God's economy for those that are not in Christ. Paul understood this very well. That's why in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, he regards everything that he had ever done prior to knowing Christ as rubbish. All of the great accomplishments, all of the prestige, all of the high rankings and, and thoughts of people, all of that total and complete rubbish. Before he had come to know the indwelling power of Christ in his life, he was completely and totally lost, dead in his sins, dead in his trespasses, unable to do anything to change his, his own condition. Could not save himself despite all of the boastings of his great accomplishments. His good works, they were but filthy rags before the Lord. And he was right to cry out that there was nothing good that dwelt within his flesh. But all of that changed. All of that changed the moment that Paul placed his faith in Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul wrote this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was a man who was completely and totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. He knew that apart from Christ, his life was meaningless. But in Christ, oh, in Christ, there was a power that could produce a harvest of 30, 60, yea, even a hundredfold. This type of dependency, though, doesn't fare too well in our rugged individual society. For anyone to be so dependent on someone else is seen as as being unhealthy. The experts within our society would probably say that that Paul was anything but strong. In fact, I'm sure that if Paul were in our day, he would be labeled as weak. They might even slap him with the diagnosis of being a codependent because he was trusting in Jesus Christ too much. They would say that his Christianity was a crutch something he needed because he was too weak, too weak to deal with this life on his own. Ever hear that? Ever been accused of that? Does any of that resonate with any of you? Can you, be, can you, can you connect with being accused of being too weak? Or could you respond to the accusations of of these critics of yours, how would you answer them if they accused you of being too weak, too dependent? Well, I'd hope that your answer would, would be something that would be biblical. I hope that you would look them square in the eye and you would tell them that they were right. You are too weak. You do need Jesus Christ, that apart from him, your life can never be what God wants it to be. In yourself, I hope you would tell them you do not have the strength to do what God requires you to do to spend eternity with him. Only by being infused with the power of God can any of us live the life that we ought to live. Only by placing our faith in Christ can we become new creatures capable of bringing any glory to God. The world may scoff at us. They may even call us fools. You may suffer ridicule at work or school or whatever other worldly realm you might found yourself running around in. But I assure you that if you are in Christ... You will have the strength to stand firm. 
If you have placed your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you are dependent upon him alone, you have a strength in dwelling in you that knows no limits. Paul had a joy that could not be quenched because he understood his need for Jesus Christ. Regardless of what others thought or what others said, Paul knew that from apart from Christ, he was totally lost. And you know, you've heard that for a lot of years. Some of you have been coming here for a long time, and yet you still, you still don't get that. You still don't get it. You don't quite understand that you need, you need Jesus You're still trusting in the erroneous thought that you are somehow a good person. That God will somehow be obligated to let you into his heaven because of who you are. That it would be wrong for God to send someone like you to hell. But let me just tell you to heed the words of Paul as they're written in Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Pride, brothers and sisters, has taken many a person by the hand and led him straight into the pit of hell. Let us therefore humble ourselves and admit our need for Jesus Christ. Let us come to God in faith such that we might be empowered to endure whatever hardships or trials we may face in this life with great joy that the world cannot understand. In his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs writes this. He says, There is a strength in Christ not only to sanctify and save us, but strength to support us under all our burdens and afflictions. And Christ expects that when we are under any burden, we should act our faith upon him to draw virtue and strength from him. Paul was able to have joy amidst a vast array of circumstances because he had a limitless power in him, equipping him, sustaining him for the task. This same power is available for each and every one of us that has given our lives to Jesus Christ. It is available to us today. But we need to depend on Jesus Christ, and we need to depend on Jesus Christ alone. It is His power, and it is His sufficiency that is is able to get us through any trial, anything that comes our way. We can endure it because of Christ in us. Brothers and sisters, let us learn the lesson of dependence. Now, the third lesson that you and I must learn if we are to rejoice greatly in the Lord is the lesson of selflessness. We must learn the lesson of selflessness. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. It says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now remember, Paul could have just written a simple little, hey guys, thanks. Thanks for the gift. Got it. But he wanted to make sure that the Philippians clearly understood that his joy was not dependent upon their money. Always thinking of others, Paul goes out of his way so as to not to mislead this generous group of believers in any way. So he tells them how he has learned to be content regardless of his circumstances. He tells them of his dependency on Christ. And now he wants to show them that he is really more concerned about them and how their gift is going to benefit them 
than how it is going to benefit himself. Yes, the Apostle Paul is a man that has learned the lesson of selflessness. With Christ as his ultimate example, Paul made it a habit of benefiting others over himself. And when it came to his dealings with the Philippians, this was no different. In chapter 2 of this letter, in an effort to promote unity amongst the Philippians and to help them to to work with one another as they should, he writes in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. This wasn't just a philosophy for Paul. This wasn't just a point of view. It was something that, that was at the very core of his faith. It was something that shaped everything that he did. And, and it was at the very core of his faith because it's what, both, it's what Jesus both taught and lived. In summing up the whole of God's commandments, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For the Christian, a love for others falls only behind our love for God. The whole teachings of the Bible can be summed up in our need to love God first and then our neighbor second. Paul got that. He understood that. He got the importance of loving God and people, which is why his thank you to the Philippians spans over these 11 verses rather than just taking up one line. The gift that the Philippians sent brought Paul joy, not because of the personal benefit that it was to give to him, but because of its spiritual benefit to them. Paul was fine with their gift, without their gift. He didn't need it. But nevertheless, he was glad that they sent it because he knew that it would yield a beneficial credit to their heavenly accounts. The Philippians were doing the very thing that Jesus Christ has told each and every single one of us to do in Matthew 6.20, to store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is exactly what the Philippians were doing in their gift here. Paul knew that the Philippian believers who had sacrificed so much to send the financial gift to him would one day be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And it was this thing that caused the Apostle Paul to rejoice greatly, to praise God for the work that he was doing. Paul was a man who had learned the lesson of selflessness. He was a man who thought more about others than himself. But again, what about you? Can the same be said of you? Are you someone who frequently gives preference to others? Or do you have to have things done according to your ways and according to your terms? And let's just bring it into the world, right? How about when you're driving on the freeway? Are you selfless? How about when you're at home with your family? Are you selfless? How about when you're at school or at your job? Are you selfless? It's so easy, isn't it? And we don't have to work very hard to become self-focused. It's so easy just to, to, to bring it always back to us to become so consumed with our own wants and our own desires, our own feelings, that we fail to consider the wants and the feelings of other people. Our selfishness doesn't want to give preference to anyone but me, myself, and I. That's it. But I assure you, brothers and sisters, there is no joy in that way of living. And there is no joy in that way of living because it is disobedient to the word of God and you cannot walk in disobedience to God and experience the joy that comes from being in his good and perfect will. There is a joy that flows out of a selfless life. 
The more you and I become conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the more we begin to function in the manner that God has created us for. Let us learn the lesson of selflessness, which now brings us to our fourth lesson. The fourth lesson that you and I must learn if we are to rejoice greatly in the Lord is the lesson of confidence. We must learn the lesson of confidence. Look at verse 19. It says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The first thing that I want you to take note of is the fact that Paul has complete confidence in the fact that God will take care of the Philippians' needs. He isn't telling them that God will take care of all of their wants but rather all of their needs. And this is important because we've already discussed the fact that the line between a need and a want is easily blurred by us. But I assure you, it is not easily blurred by God. God knows exactly what you and I need. And Paul was confident that his God would take care of these believers who had gone to such great lengths to show love and concern for him. And this confidence is not ill-grounded. Instead, it is, it is firmly grounded in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we look at verses 31 through 33. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about not being anxious. He reminds them of how his father cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the, of the fields and that we are of far more worth than any of these things to him. Then he says this, starting in verse 31, he says, do not, then, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All of these needs will be taken care of by God. The Apostle Paul had total confidence in both the desire and the ability of God to take care of the Philippians' needs. He knew that try as the Philippians might, they were never going to outgive God. They, they, they could never come close to giving as God gives to us. A person will always receive far more from God than what they will give. Because God is the one who will supply all of your needs. And his supply, and get this, is not limited to the size of your need. But rather, it is according to, in the measure of, his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Stop and think about that for a second. Stop, if you would, and ponder how incredible that statement really is. Now, let me ask you this. Do you believe that? Honestly. Are you like Paul? Confident that God will meet all of your needs in a manner that befits his riches? In Romans 8, 31 through 32, Paul writes this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God was willing to send Jesus Christ to the earth to die for your sins, do you really believe that he's going to fail to take care of your needs? Do you really think that God would have had Christ do all that he did and to suffer all that he did just so that he could sit and watch you suffer? We have a faithful God. And according to Ephesians 3.20, this God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He is a God of unlimited love, of unlimited grace, of unlimited resources. Therefore, let us approach him in full confidence. Let us come to this God 
fully trusting in his ability and willingness to supply all of our needs. There is a joy that comes in having confidence. Let us learn the lesson of confidence. All of which brings us to the fifth and final lesson. The fifth lesson that you and I must learn if we are to rejoice greatly in the Lord is the lesson of adoration. We must learn the lesson of adoration. Let's look at verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the Apostle Paul. He never hesitates to just kind of praise God. I mean, he never loses sight of what of what our ultimate purpose in life is, namely to bring glory to God. He always kind of has that just in his peripheral, and, and, he, and he always always kind of has that just... Where it's, 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 it's all, it, he's got his sights set on it. And at various times throughout his writings, we find Paul kind of moved as he's, as he's jotting down these great truths and he's communicating these great things to the people that he's writing to. And we, we kind of see him just all of a sudden kind of get swept up in what he's, what he's writing to people and, and he gets taken away by it. And then he just all of a sudden wants to just praise God for what he's doing. I mean, he just wants to offer up a quick little praise to God as he, as he kind of drinks in what he's writing to other people. I mean, look at Romans eleven thirty three through 36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. First Timothy 1, 15 through 17. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Second Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew without question that there was only one God. And this one God existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He also knew that this, this God was not in any way dependent upon man, but that rather man was completely and totally dependent upon him. Thus, Paul responds with adoration to the one who is responsible for his salvation. This is the fitting response for all who are in Christ. This is how each of us should respond. As you soak in all that God has done for you, all that he has afforded to you in Christ... We should, like Paul, be moved to offer praise to God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this regarding God. God is the eternal, the creator, the artificer, and sustainer of everything that is. Glorious in holiness and power, he is the one to whom the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. He is a person, and he has not only created everything and sustains everything, but everything is subject to his dominion and reign. Brothers and sisters, God is somebody who is worthy of our worship. And in Paul's doxology, it's just a joyous crown that he offers to the one that he loves, that he adores. Paul had learned the lesson of adoration. He had learned to praise the one who had given him so much in Christ. But again, how about you? Do you offer praise and worship to God? Are you amazed that God saved you? Are you taken aback by God's love for you? Is your entire life an act of worship to the one who loves you and sent his only begotten son to die for you? You and I were created to bring glory to God. And only God is worthy of of our worship. Anything else isn't deserving of it. Therefore, let us be 
of people who learn the lesson of adoration. Now this morning, we've talked about how if you and I are to rejoice greatly in the Lord, then we need to strive to learn these five lessons, the lesson of contentment, the lesson of dependence, the lesson of selflessness, the lesson of confidence, and the lesson of adoration. These five lessons we need to learn. We need to examine our hearts. And if we truly learn these five lessons, then I am confident that you will, you will have a satisfaction that is guaranteed. You will have a joy that cannot be touched by the things of this world. You will have your relationship with God where it should be if you can drink in these five lessons and give praise to God for it because that is who is worthy of it. God has blessed us, brothers and sisters. He has given us so much. We just need to learn the lessons here so that we can have that joy that is not dependent upon things or other people or our situations, but rather it is dependent on Him. And when we do that, your satisfaction is guaranteed. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you so much for all that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in here who has not trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you will just put it upon their hearts to do that now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for them to stop making excuses and to give their life to you. Lord, remove the blinders from their eyes. Help them to see how great a God you are. And Lord, give them the joy that comes from walking in close fellowship with you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it shapes and molds us into being the people that you call us to be. Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we fall short. But Lord, give us the grace to change. Give us the grace to rejoice in you and to find our sufficiency in you alone. Thank you for our time together, Lord. I pray that you will work in the hearts of each and every one of us so that we might be a people set apart to bring you glory and honor in every way possible. And we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.